if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you will know that we have been studying together not only the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, but particularly the third book, the book of Leviticus. The name, as you can see, includes the name of one of the tribes of Israel, Levi. The Levites were the priestly tribe. And the book of Leviticus, if you want to put it that way, is about the priesthood and about the offerings, the sacrificial system, and the various divers laws and ordinances that God established for Israel as his people. The great theme of Leviticus, as we've been noticing, is separation and or holiness. It amounts to the same thing. And we can learn from Leviticus a very important truth which is that holiness is really, really important to God. Because the fact that the Lord would devote an entire book of Scripture to the subject would indicate that. It's a vital, important subject. We dare not ignore the topic of holiness. And yet you'll find that in much of the preaching of this 21st century, Holiness is almost an absent concept. Sometimes you don't hear anything at all about God's holiness or about God's demand for holiness in his people. It's a very generic come to Jesus message, which can mean whatever you want it to mean, depending on your point of view. Now, there are many things in Leviticus that we because of time, are not able to consider. But there are some very main chief lessons that are found on the surface of the book, if you like. And I want to deal with some of those today, but focusing on the great subject, again, of holiness. It is so very, very important. So important that I think it's, it's vital that we look again at what the entire book has to say on the subject. And my first point today is the centrality of holiness. Obviously, that's what I've been emphasizing here in the last couple of minutes. The centrality of holiness, how vital a thing it is. The whole book is devoted to it. Why should that be? Well, the first and the most obvious reason is that God himself is a holy God. Look at chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 26. Here's something that you'll find in various forms about eight different times in Scripture. Some of them in Leviticus, one at least is repeated in 1 Peter, in chapter 1. And ye shall be holy unto me, for because I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. There's the first and obvious reason why holiness should be central in our thinking. The holiness of God. How holy is the Lord? If we don't consider how holy God is, then there's always going to be the danger of minimizing our human sinfulness. And those two things together will result in very bad thoughts and minimizing thoughts of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I want to preach the gospel, I must start out with a holy God a holy God who made us. He didn't make us for sin. He made us for himself. Man's chief end is to glorify God. We have a holy God who actually hates sin. And because he hates sin, he has done something about it at great cost. Infinite cost indeed to himself. One theologian said, quote, it is because God is holy as well as loving that the atonement of Christ is provided. Because he's holy. Now what is holiness? Well you could say it's separateness 
You could say it is the quality of being apart from anything that is sinful. If you want a good definition of holiness, that's what it is. It's being apart from all that is sinful. The Lord is different. The Lord is unique. He is different from that which is common. And He is separate from that which brings defilement. God's holiness is who He is. We talk about a holy God. We're really referring to what and who God is. Because everything about God is holy. His wisdom, His power, His judgments, even His love is a holy love. If it were not, He would never have sent His only begotten Son to die for our sins. And to satisfy the just demands of His own holy nature and His own holy law. Is it not possible that many of God's people, those who profess the Lord's name at least, have lost sight of the awesome truth of the holiness of God. Holiness is not emphasized as it ought to be. And sometimes those who do emphasize it are wrongly accused of preaching false doctrine. Now there are some false views of holiness. Let us not be unaware of that. There are those who have been referred to colloquially as holiness preachers. And a lot of them are very well motivated. They have the right heart. They have a good heart. But a lot of what they teach is not scriptural. Uh, Certainly in terms of how holiness is to be achieved or what it means to be holy. And I've dealt with that in a series of messages on the deeper life or the victorious Christian life. The idea that you can reach this plane that others have not reached and stay there and, and you are, as it were, holy and many are not. That's unscriptural. But holiness, despite the fact that there are those with false views on the subject, is a real thing. And God wants his people to be holy. Is it not the case that often today, in a lot of today's preaching, it's a little bit like someone standing there in front of people and asking them, which part of your anatomy itches and I'll scratch it for you. That's what's going on in many places. Instead of pointing people to a holy God, a God who is more holy than we can even contemplate, who deserves our worship and our obedience. Instead of emphasizing that, a lot of times preachers will deal with what are considered to be people's problems and difficulties and how the gospel can minister to those things. And I think that you could take this in another direction and say that not only are there preachers who are trying to scratch people where they itch. The Bible talks about that, by the way, those hearers who have itching ears. And there are preachers who scratch those ears for them. But sometimes as well, men give the impression that the church is kind of like a business that that we want to promote. We've got to sell the product. And so the best way to sell the product is to try to tell people that Christianity and church is actually really fun. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's entertaining. It's not so bad. And even though you're a pagan and you love your sin, you ought to just come join the club and start living on the sunny side of the street like the rest of us. A pastor once stood up in his church and he was talking about the evening service. And this is what he said. Be sure to be at the service this evening. We're going to have a fun time. That's the cell. And it's it's not just among the young people this is done. Oh, I would suggest that it's particularly so among the youth. We're going to have fun. Come to the youth fellowship because we have fun. 
come to this event or that event because it's going to be fun. And that's, they even advertise it. On church websites, I've seen it. I've seen it on leaflets. This is the big sell. Come along and have fun. Can you imagine Moses and the elders of Israel? They're standing there at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and they're beholding the glory of God and they're having fun. Well, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when the Bible tells us that he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He saw these angelic creatures saying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah is writing about it and he says, I had such a fun time. If you look at Isaiah chapter 6, you'll see that Isaiah had such a fun time that he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know me, most of you. I like to have a laugh. I consider myself to be a humorous person. I enjoy humor. I enjoy a laugh. And not always at other people's expense, sometimes at my own. That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. Humor is a gift from God. I believe the Bible says, doesn't it, that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It does. does you good. If you laugh more and smile more, you'll feel better, I'm telling you. But when you see yourself as God describes you in His Word, and you see God as He is described in Scripture, and you get a, a real recognition of that, you're not going to be laughing. Someone said, a man being nailed to a cross... And being put to shame for our sins is no laughing matter. And neither is hell. Neither is the subject of damnation. Some years ago there was a so-called evangelist called Rodney Howard Brown. Along with some other charismatics. He was involved in a phenomenon that became known as the Toronto Blessing. You may have heard of it. At that time... It was in the media a lot. You saw videos, all kinds of promotion of this. People were laughing uproariously in congregations, crawling on the floor like animals. And when he, Rodney Howard Brown, was talking about the subject of hell and people being damned, there were people all over the congregation uproariously laughing. And I thought to myself... The damnation of the lost is a laughing matter? Is that of God? That's as far from Scripture as I can imagine. Look at your Bible and just consider people like Job, who put his hand over his mouth. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I think about Isaiah. I've just referenced Isaiah chapter 6 and his reaction to seeing the holiness of God displayed. Think about Peter. The Lord convicted him of his sin. He's kneeling before the Lord. He said, depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. I think of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation chapter 1. You see him there prostrate before the Lord, falling on his face. He said he was as one who was dead. Because he got a vision of the Christ of God. Oh, how holy is the Lord. And this is where we must start always when we come to the scriptures, to the gospel. The centrality of holiness, it centers on God himself. There's the command of holiness. And again, Leviticus 20 verse 26 repeats what it says in some other scriptures. Because you go back to the earlier part of Leviticus and in chapter 19, the very same thought is there where he says in verse 2, 
Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy. For, it means because I the Lord your God am holy. That's why God wants you to be holy. Because He is holy. You know what godliness is? That's just a contraction of a couple of words. God-likeness. Godliness. God-likeness. It is to be like God. Now, are you and I capable of being exactly like God? Of course not. Of course not. There is none holy as the Lord. The scripture says this. But nonetheless, holiness is a command for God's people. God wants his people to be holy. Be ye holy is not an option. It's a command. And as I've already indicated, there are eight occasions in Scripture where God said to His people, Be ye holy, for I am holy. One preacher said, What health is to the human body, holiness is to the soul. If you're spiritually healthy, you'll be holy. And our Lord Jesus Christ is described in Jeremiah as the great physician. He can give us the spiritual health and the wholesomeness that we need. We can be more holy than we are, even in practical terms. Now in Exodus 19 verse 6, the Lord said something that was taken up by Peter in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. So let's look at those two scriptures together just very briefly. Exodus 19 and verse number 6. And this, by the way, is the occasion I referred to a few minutes ago when Moses and the elders were before the Lord at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse number 6. Here's the Lord speaking. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. That's an interesting phrase, that a kingdom of priests. When, when you talk about a kingdom, you, you think about a king. So what the Lord is really saying here is, you're going to be kings and priests. You're going to be, what? A holy nation. Now Peter takes up those words in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. This is really referencing that Old Testament portion. He says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There it is again, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. An holy nation. A peculiar people. And that doesn't mean that you're a little bit odd. That's how we view the word peculiar. It doesn't mean that. It's more or less referring to a purchased people. People who've been set apart. That, it means in order that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You're now a different people, so you are to be known for your holiness. And whatever else the Christian church is known for today, I would suggest to you that it certainly is not generally known for its holiness. I'm interested in some of the phraseology that's used in Scripture, especially concerning Moses and concerning Joshua. I've been reading recently in the book of Joshua, and I notice where it speaks about Moses, the servant of the Lord. It speaks of Moses, the man of God. It says the same thing about Joshua, that he was a servant of the Lord. He's a man of God. I think about the one who walked along, and the Shunammite woman said, I perceive that this is a holy man of God. Speaking of Elisha, there's something about him. Oh, how many Christians do we know today and people say that about them. There's a man of God. There's a woman of God. Now, the nation of Israel were called, commanded to be holy, and yet they failed to be a holy nation. They failed to give that witness to the rest of the world that God wanted them to give. And not only did that nation suffer for its sins, but the pagan world around suffered by not seeing in the people of God the difference that it makes when you belong to a holy God. See, our holiness or lack thereof 
has an effect on other people. And we'll speak of that a little later. The preacher said, You will notice that Jesus didn't say, Ye are the lips of the world. He said, Ye are the light of the world. He didn't say, Ye are the sermons of the earth. He said, Ye are the salt of the earth. It is important how we live. The command of holiness. And then there's a third thing. The commencement of holiness. Where does holiness actually begin? How do you get holiness? Where does it come from? Well, as has been pointed out, the book of Leviticus doesn't start out with a prayer meeting or a praise service or or a meeting for sharing thoughts. It begins at the altar. Right there in chapter 1, God describes the burnt offering, the burnt sacrifice. Then from there, in the first seven chapters, it speaks of various other offerings, the meat offering or meal offering, the trespass offering, the peace offerings, and so on. Innocent animals had their blood shed on behalf of guilty sinners. Now, of course, all of this was typical. All of this was pointing to Christ. The blood sacrifices in themselves never took away sins. Read Hebrews chapter 10. You'll see that's very clearly taught. They never ever made the comers thereunto perfect. Anybody who came to the altar with an animal for sacrifice, that animal's blood or the burning of its body did not make that person holy. However, it pointed to one who would. It pointed to Christ. Some time ago, you may remember, we did a study in Leviticus on the sacrifices. For some people there are five, others will say there are six, because they include some of the drink offerings along with it. But basically there are five. And all of those point to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And the first step toward holiness for us is to admit that we're sinners. That's the first place. That's where you have to come to. That's where you start out. I am a guilty, hell-deserving, ill-deserving sinner. That's the starting point. Not making excuses for myself. Not making excuses for my sin. It's not like uh, someone in a church that I once pastored and one of their family members was involved in gross sin. And the mother, seeking to excuse that to me as the pastor said, the devil made her do it. Really? So the person doesn't have any responsibility for this wickedness. It's just, we'll just blame the devil. Now obviously there's a devil. Obviously the devil inspires wickedness. But as my late mother used to say, The devil gets the blame for a lot of stuff he's not guilty of. Because people themselves are guilty for their sins. The woman that thou gavest to me. Remember that? Adam, you've sinned. Lord, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. Well, Eve, what have you got to say? Oh, the serpent. The serpent. It's his fault. Pass the buck. Pass it on. It's always somebody else's fault. Where we must come to if we're going to have real dealings with God is no excuses. I am a sinner. And furthermore, Christ is my only hope. He's the only Savior. He's the only Redeemer of God's elect. I'm not going to be able to become holy because I make New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to be able to be holy because of my religious habits on a daily or weekly basis. I'm not becoming holy because of the great knowledge that I've gained theologically from books and from the Bible. I am guilty, vile, hell-deserving, and apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I am nothing. And I can never be anything. You look at how the, the Bible speaks of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that Calvary's cross reveals to us 
I would say it is the chief message is how much God hates sin. There are several scriptures that speak of God not sparing certain people. You read, for example, in the book of Jude, that God spared not the angels that sinned. Those were the ones that fell with Lucifer back in eternity. And we can understand that angels who sinned cast down to hell. We understand that. The Bible says that God cast off and did not spare the natural branches. He was referring to Israel with all of its privileges. We can understand why Israel was set aside. We can understand that God overturned the old world. God spared not the old world. The antediluvian world before the flood. We know that they were wicked. We know that they were profligate. They, we know that they committed abominable sins. There's no excuse. That's why God punished them. God spared not the old world. We can understand that. But then Romans 8.32 says, God spared not his own son. But delivered him up for us all. And friends, that I do not understand. I cannot get my head around that. What is it? That made God punish Christ on the cross. It was our sins. Our sins. Our sins literally killed the only begotten Son of God. Think about that every time you sin against the Lord. That sin put Jesus on the cross. That sin is why Christ died. Oh, we need to have a hatred for sin. Because if we don't, we'll never be able to cultivate holiness in a practical way in our lives. Thank God, though, that the place of the altar speaks to us of the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood brings us near to God. We were once afar off, now we're made nigh by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. The blood purges us from sin. Our consciences are purged from dead works to serve the living God. And so when we accept the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, then we're on that road of holiness. We're viewed as holy by God, and we have an imparted holiness in our lives that's given to us by the Lord as we grow in grace. That brings me to the characteristics of holiness. The book of Leviticus speaks to this. The characteristics of holiness. I'll just mention two of them. One is obedience. Obedience. You think about Jewish worshippers coming to the altar there in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7. It was not enough for that worshipper to come with that sacrifice to the altar and then go away knowing that his or her sins had been forgiven. No, there was a responsibility beyond that. The worshipper had to obey those rules, if you like, that God had given to his people concerning what was clean and what was unclean. You read the book of Leviticus, you see this. We mentioned it in another message. Even what they ate, they had to be careful about. Clean beasts, unclean beasts. What they touched, what was clean, what was unclean. They had to separate the precious from the vile, the clean from the unclean. There were regulations, there were rules that God set for them. Not for their salvation, but because they were saved. And God has a right to tell you and to tell me what's right and what's wrong. You know what happens in the world today when you tell someone what the scripture says about a certain practice or a certain thing? They'll say, who are you to tell me what to do? Who do you think you are telling me what I can or can't do? And I'll say, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I can't tell you what to do. But God tells you what's right and what's wrong. I've had people, when they utter a few oaths or they take the Lord's name in vain or use a curse word, and they look at me and they know I'm a pastor, oh, I'm sorry. I appreciate that. But I always say, you know what? Look, it's not me you need to be concerned about. It's the Lord who hears it. It's the Lord who knows there's nothing holy about me in that sense. It is the Lord. You know, today, 
We don't have to pay attention to the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. The Lord has dealt with that in the New Testament, and I don't want to go into all that detail today. Uh, the, the blanket coming down, or the sheet from heaven, and all the creeping beasts, and what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 about eating different animals and so on. But let me just say this. Even though we don't abide by the, 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 the dietary laws in Leviticus for our lives today in the New Testament, we should pay attention to what they illustrate. What they teach. There are things in this world that, as someone said, should not be allowed to get into our system because God disapproves of them. I don't have to be afraid anymore to touch a dead body or pick up a bone. In fact, maybe it's just me, but loved ones that I have lost and they've been, their, their remains have been there in the casket. I always touch them. Cold. But I always touch them. I touch my mother's brow. Same with my father. Not afraid of a dead body. I don't have to be worried about handling a dead body or touching a bone. But I should be careful, as James chapter 1 verse 27 says, to keep myself unspotted from the world. People talk a lot today about Christian liberty. Christian liberty is not license to indulge in things that are not, according to God, good for us. There are things that are good for us, there are things that are not good for us. We are reminded in Scripture, are we not, that we are to keep God's commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. 1 John 3.22 This is really important. The Old Testament people of Israel, they had to walk really carefully, circumspectly if you like, to keep themselves from being defiled. They knew if they touched certain things, they went near certain things, they would be defiled. They'd have to go outside the camp for a time and be separated from the place of worship. They had to incorporate God's standards of separateness into every aspect of their daily lives. You see that all the way through Leviticus. The clothing they wore, the food that they ate, the things they touched, the people that they fellowshiped with. There was no such thing as secular and sacred to the Old Testament saints. I get so tired of hearing that. Somebody did something, oh well he didn't do that as a Christian, he did that as a politician. Oh, that wasn't in his capacity as a believer. That that was in a different context. That wasn't his sacred life. That was his secular life. Really? You mean if I, as a minister of the gospel, involved myself in some public scandal and it appeared in the Allentown papers and so on, that I could use as my excuse, oh, I I didn't do that as a pastor. I did that as a private citizen. How would that fly? No, there's no such thing as secular and sacred to the believer. Everything in life belongs to the Lord. Remember that. God's holiness needs to touch every area of our lives if we're going to be making spiritual progress. I talk about obedience. The other thing is the origin of holiness. Its origin. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. When we read in Leviticus about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, being punished by the Lord, and actually were killed by the Lord, because fire emerged from the altar and slew them, we learn the reason for that. It's because they brought false fire into the Lord's sanctuary. They violated God's holy law. One preacher commented that God doesn't do that today, but if he did, not very many saints would be left. Some people think that those two priests, by the way, were under the influence of alcohol when they did what they did. That's another story. Uh, But we know that false zeal is something that we have to be 
concerned about. You and I don't have holiness from ourselves. It doesn't emerge from our own actions or our own hearts. We must be careful that what we do is something that is inspired by the Lord himself and not by the flesh. Let's not be involved in, even in our times of worship in false fire. Notice then the connection of holiness. I must be very brief here of a few points left and I have to get them all in. The connection of holiness. Holiness, you'll see in Leviticus, is always connected with priestly mediation. There was a mediator. Somebody that came between the Old Testament Jew and the Lord. You see, when you read Leviticus, something becomes very clear. And that is that the regular Jewish person who was not of the tribe of Levi was not allowed into the sacred courts of the tabernacle. Couldn't enter. They had to just watch from afar things that were taking place. And that worshipper, he had to come to God by means of the mediation of the priests. Now it's different today. We don't need an earthly priest today because in the New Testament, as is pointed out in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, all God's people are priests. We're all priests. And so we come to God through Jesus Christ, who is our great mediator. He is our high priest. First, John, First Timothy, rather, 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one that brings us to God. We pray in his name. That's why it's not just a kind of a form that we use when we say at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. It's literally true. We are coming in Jesus' name. We're pleading his blood. We're pleading his merit. He's the one who brings us to God. As the hymn puts it, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. So there is this aspect to be considered. It is what I have called the connection of holiness. Coming to the Lord through Jesus Christ. There can be no growth in holiness apart from fellowship with our Saviour. The Lord is one who speaks of himself as making us perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Now unlike in the Old Testament, we as believers today can enter into God's presence into the Holy of Holies, spiritually of course, not literally, but spiritually, and fellowship with Him. Hebrews 10 speaks of that. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We come boldly, Hebrews 4.16, to the throne of grace, that's the mercy seat, to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, what a blessing that is to be able to pray and just call upon the Lord. In the name of Jesus. And fellowship with him. But we've got to take time to be holy. We've got to commune with God. And we have to remember the connection of holiness. We need a mediator. And we have a mediator. In our Lord Jesus. There's also the conflict with holiness that I want to mention. The conflict with holiness. That is... The world is the enemy of righteousness. Everything in this world is set up to oppose holiness. You need to understand that. Everything is out there that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and so on. It's there to militate against holiness. And when you bring this down to the fact that it's not just an individual matter, it's important to think about this, that our lack of holiness affects not only us personally, but it affects others and it affects our land. It does. I want you to think about this. Moses made it clear that the sins of Israel affected the land that God had given them. The way he put it in the scripture that we read today is that the land would spew them out. If they were involved in the activities that God had forbidden. 
Did you see that? The Lord made it clear to them that verse 22 of chapter 20, Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein spew you not out. In other words, that the land would vomit you out. If they persisted in their rebellion against God, it would have an effect. And there were two things that God especially singled out as polluting the land. In Leviticus chapter 18, you can read about it. One is idolatry and the other is sexual immorality. By the way, they always go together. Idolatry, sexual immorality. And God said, and I'm reading here from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 and 25, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. And you'll see that the sin of homosexuality is included in that in verse 22. And bestiality in verse 23. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. For in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You think that sexual immorality and the permissive society is a new thing? It's not a new thing. It was going on in the days when Israel were upon the earth. The nations around them were involved in these sins. See, that's what's happening today. We're going back to those days. This is not new. Ecclesiastes tells us actually there is nothing new under the sun. Just that people have new and sophisticated ways of committing this sin. But the sins have been there from time immemorial. Filth. Of course we know that today we would like to hold the world to our standards, to biblical standards. It's good to be able to do that, but we often can't do it. The church doesn't have the authority to impose its laws or God's laws on the ungodly citizens of the country. Would to God that we did, but we don't. But what we do have ability to do is to control what we do. People who profess to know the Lord need to practice God's standards themselves. When the church becomes just like the world, it's not going to have any influence to change the world. What is happening today is that the church, and I speak here using that generic term, it includes just about anything that's religious, it's becoming more and more like the world in order to accommodate the world. That's why you now have so-called churches with sodomite ministers and elders and who conduct sodomite marriages in their churches. Because that's what the world wants and therefore they're giving the world what it wants. Not challenging the culture, but being changed themselves by the culture. And idolatry and immorality are largely acceptable in society today. Not only are they acceptable, however, but they are promoted and they are validated by the world. And you see how sexual immorality is exalted and exhibited today. It's at the heart. It's at the heart of today's worldly entertainment. It's at the heart of it. Days of our lives. I don't even watch that. I just happen to know the name of it because I've seen it. <clears throat> you know these soap operas keep you hanging every day so you can back next day and watch their garbage the next day again. I'm telling you the storylines now are going to be a lot different from what they were 30 years ago. You've got a lot of TV shows now that have sodomite characters right in them. Never used to have that. They can't even leave Buzz Lightyear alone. He has to be involved in the LGBTQ+, whatever other part of the alphabet you want to use. It's disgusting. That's the world we're living in. 
Christians should not support that in any way, shape, or form, but challenge it. The whole setup of the world's entertainment industry is anti-God. You must understand that it's against God. It's not going to help you on to God. It's not going to help you spiritually. And we expect this sort of stuff from the ungodly in the world. They don't know any better. But when idolatry and immorality invades the church, that's a big problem. There's another thing that I want to mention in that connection. It's the community of holiness. It's not a private thing. We're not called, and the Old Testament believer was not called to go it alone. The priests, you see, were the spiritual oversight of the nation. The Levites assisted the priests. And every person in the nation had a part to play in the ongoing battle against wickedness and the world. And there's a a very dangerous tendency that's around today in our modern world. And it's the emphasis on individualism. Individual Christianity. Christians who are encouraged to be like the Lone Ranger. They don't even have Tonto for company anymore. They're just the Lone Ranger. They're on their own. Doesn't need anybody else to help him. Doesn't need anybody else to lead him on to God. I remember a fellow once who attended a conference I was at in London. We shared a taxi together. And he heard that I was a pastor. He said, we don't need pastors. Oh, really? No, we don't need pastors. He says, the Lord is my pastor. He quoted Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The word shepherd means pastor. The Lord is my pastor. I don't need a, I don't need a pastor. So it's funny that, isn't it? Because the same Lord said in Ezekiel, I will give you pastors after mine own heart. It's interesting that, isn't it? It's interesting that Paul said that God made me a minister. He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. First Timothy 3 spends a lot of time talking about bishops and overseers and what their qualifications are. If there's not supposed to be any pastors, why did God tell pastors what they were supposed to be like? Well, he moved on to something else. Why did he say that? The Lord is my pastor. I don't need a pastor. Because there's a one-man band. He didn't believe he needed to be in a church. He didn't believe he needed to be under any ministry. He was just going to go it alone. Spiritual hobo. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible speaks of the community of saints. And of course you and I need individual and personal time with God. But it can't end there. And we need the help of spiritual leaders and other believers in the church to encourage us and lead us on to God. I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but if we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25, we are robbing ourselves of the blessings that God gives to those who are a part of a worshipping community. And there's one other thing. I don't often have eight points in my sermon. The consequence of holiness. What is it? Leviticus 22 verse 32. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you. I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. What is he saying here? He's saying here really that holiness glorifies God. It brings glory to the Lord. See, other people see, they witness a holy life. And as I read earlier in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we are called to be a holy priesthood and holy nation, that in order that we might show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his light. There is a testimony that we have that's not just something that God sees but it's something that the world sees certainly in Matthew 6 when the Lord was talking about giving your alms giving charity or giving contributions and that sort of thing he he made this clear as one of the principles of our lives 
that we live our lives in the sight of God. To please Him, and to please Him alone. Not before the eyes of people, in order to impress them. We're not to do our righteousness before people, so that they will say, Oh, what a great guy he is, or what a great woman she is. We live before God to please Him. But, but, when we do what is pleasing in the sight of God, other people see it. And that is why the Lord said in in Matthew 5 and verse 16, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, we don't live in behind closed doors. We live in the world. People see, people listen, they hear. And they make judgments based on what they see and what they hear. And they'll decide what kind of a person you are based on what they see and what they hear. Yes, we must live to please God. But in doing so, we are to be a testimony before men because that pleases God. They see our good works and that causes them to glorify Him. That's what it's all about. It's not saying, look at me. It's saying, look what God has done for me. Look at the Lord. Give Him the praise. I am what I am, Paul said, by the grace of God. What happened to you, the world says. And if they're commenting about a person who was once living an ungodly life and then they're now living a Christian life, they'll say, well, he turned over a new leaf. He got religious. He became good living. It's all about him. He did this. He did that. And they don't realize he didn't do it. The Lord did it. And if people ever come to recognize that, that will bring glory to God. That will bring great honor to his name. And so in closing, we seek to live a holy life. A life that is different. A life that is separated. Not so that we can be recognized as just a different people. But in order to please a holy God. That it might redound to his praise. Oh, to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer. Shouldn't that be our desire? Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine. All my nature refine. Till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Be ye holy. For I am holy.